you've noticed that there's a pattern here, haven't you? In reading the scriptures, that this is just the way that Jesus does things. Pharisees and scribes are grumbling in the background, always. They can't seem to help themselves. They're uncomfortable with Jesus, his actions, and his words. Jesus does seek fellowship with all people, and that makes those persons who do not seek fellowship with all people uncomfortable. And that is what we see here. Jesus' parables are this constant stream of reminders of the difference between those who really seek to fulfill God's way, to accompany him away from home, and those who are not fully committed to that. It's not that these are particularly bad people, but they're not completely sold out to the idea of what God may be up to. The chapter before the one that uh, the reading came from is interesting because Jesus there is talking about hospitality and invitation as well. He tells the parable, and perhaps you will remember this, of a great feast that was given by someone who sent out invitations. And I don't think that people meant it in a bad way, but they were busy. And so when they received the invitations, they responded that they would not be able to come. Perhaps you remember that one person had just purchased a piece of property and he was going through the paperwork. Some of you know how detailed that can be. And it just would not be possible for him to show up for the great feast. Another person had just bought a a yoke of five yoke of oxen and he was taking care of that situation trying to find a field in which he could place them feed for them and trying to get all of that situated he also sent his regrets there was one person who had just been married and when the invitation came uh, they were about to head out on their honeymoon and well, you and I would have done the same thing, right? I mean, I can't come. I mean, I've got plans here. And yet when the word was carried back to the master that was hosting this feast, his uh, really angry reaction was, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the town and bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. That's an overreaction, it seems to me, but maybe there is some insight that we can gain from what Jesus is up to here. And that is that the very ones that we think would be the least invited are the ones that are the most invited. And in fact, when the banquet hall is not full, the master sends out those servants to go and compel people to come to the feast. I don't know exactly how you do that. Grab somebody by the elbow and say, you've got to come to this. This is, this is demanded of you that you show up for this party The master wants there to be this celebration. You remember the story that is told in this 15th chapter about the sheep, don't you? The shepherd has 100 sheep, one gets lost. He leaves 99 in a very risky place in search of the one that is lost. And when he finds the one... He wants all who are nearby to come and celebrate, to celebrate with him. And you remember the story that Jesus tells about the woman who has the dowry coin. And when she loses that coin, she is 
fraught with despair. She begins to dust every corner of the house until finally she sees it gleaming in the corner, grabs it, jumps up, and calls out to her neighbors that they too should come and celebrate that which is lost has been found. You get where this is going because he is out there. Jesus is out there, actively looking, searching. Jesus, away from home, looking for those with whom he might connect. There are two biggies in terms of parables. The Good Samaritan, which you know, those in the church and those outside of the church know that parable. It's made a good reputation for itself. And the second one is the one that Ian read to us this morning, the parable of the prodigal son. If we follow Jesus away from home, we must consider this parable, which marks the way in which we should relate to those that are around us. This parable is called the parable of the prodigal son, but I've also heard it referred to as the parable of the waiting father. I'm just waiting for somebody to refer to it as the parable of the resistant son. Because really, that's what it comes down to in the end, doesn't it? This situation is unthinkable. The younger son asked for his inheritance even before his father has died. I haven't heard of any other situation in which this has been done. It wasn't that the younger son was going to inherit as much as the older son. The older son's inheritance was going to be two-thirds of what the father had. The younger son would inherit one-third of that, but still it was a gracious plenty for him to ask. In fact, it was offensive for him to even bring it up. Interestingly enough, though, the father gives in, and he gives to him that part of his inheritance. I can imagine the older son shaking his head and being disapproving of it. But the father did give to the son what he asked. And then the son wasted it in dissolute living. Now, as far as the elder son is concerned, he was going to have a smear campaign for that younger fella in his family. And he said he wasted it on prostitutes. Jesus didn't say that. The father did not say that in this parable. You can imagine that the elder son would say just about anything. It was dissolute living, whatever that may have been. It left him finally living like a pig. In fact, he was taking care of the pigs, employed by a man who would not even give him a decent meal in the middle of the day in addition to his labors. He thought to himself, in fact, the scripture says, when he came to himself, it occurred to him that even those people that his father employed had it better than he did from this employee, employer. And so he hits the road for home. He returns And yet before he even gets there, the father meets him on the road. The father runs to embrace him, to plant a kiss of welcome on his cheek, 
to adorn him with a robe and to put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet as if he belonged. And he did as far as the father was concerned. But the elder son, hearing of this commotion and seeing the party beginning to take its form, looks with disgust on the entire situation. No longer is it just a prodigal son. Now he has a prodigal father with whom he does not connect, nor does he understand his ways. The father who goes so much further than any good-meaning father should go. Doesn't he know how to be a father? Think about this. You and I are so reserved in some ways when the suggestion is brought to us that we should move out beyond those places than which we might feel comfortable. Um, We've already been through one part of this in worship. There is always someone who will come to report during the year that they're not completely comfortable with the idea of passing the peace. It's not as if we invented this here at Pittman Park, right? Even if you've been other places, you've had this time of greeting and worship, But the idea that all kinds of calamity can happen when you're shaking hands with somebody that you really don't know. And that's just the members, right? You know, what do the guests feel about this? I don't know what's going on here, you know? In fact, if we weren't compelled to do this, the truth is I'm not sure that we would do it at all. And there's another place in this service, especially I want to share with those who may not know it's coming, that during our sharing of the Lord's Prayer, that we ask that the entire congregation would reach out and take the hand of someone that is near you as we share together in this. An interesting thing to think about, to move beyond our comfort zone in order that we might be the representation of God in the world. Teresa of Avila, that mystic saint of the 16th century in Spain, she was reflecting on that passage that's used so frequently in funeral services. In my father's house are many mansions. Would I have told you otherwise if it were not the case? And she said, a castle that is, in fact, we already are. Now think about this just a minute. Teresa says, a castle, talking about the Father's house, a castle that in fact we already are. She goes on to say, there can be no question of our entering it, for we ourselves are the castle. And it would be absurd to tell someone to enter a room when he was in it already. But you must understand that there are many ways of being in a place. Fascinating, isn't it? This that was written 400 years ago (laughs) has such wisdom for this day. And if I mentioned to you that this is a celebration, some people think that it's a duty, but it's not, it's a celebration. We are so accustomed to the McDonaldization of hospitality. 
And I don't mean McDonald's harm in saying that so much, but there's a duty to what they do. Um, And in fact, they're being paid to be hospitable. And so it was unusual uh, when Sue and I went into McDonald's just recently on a morning and the crew behind the counter just seemed like they had just rolled out of bed. They were tired and not very engaged and they were making mistakes with the orders and I hope I'm not getting them in trouble by just saying this. Um, We were waiting on just an egg biscuit. Have you tried those things? They are great. (laughs) They really are great. And and they, they were trying to get it all together. And there was a lady that was on my side of the counter, our side of the counter, who was watching. And she was interested. And it was almost like she was hoping that they could get this right, you know. And she was talking with them in a friendly sort of way, even the manager back there. And, the, and, and she finally, she finally looked at them and she clapped her hands. She said, she said, hey, y'all, you got to get it together now. <laughs> and they did. They did. They got it together. But she, she was invested in what they were doing, which is interesting from this side of the counter to be invested in what's going on on the other side of the counter. Um, but, you know, there's, there's only so much celebrating that can go on at McDonald's. Is there anybody here that would say that's the best feast that they've ever been at? <laughs> now, I don't think anybody will raise their hand on that one. It's not that McDonald's is bad, it's good, but it is not the ultimate when it comes to feasting. Now, let me share with you that when I was a young pastor, that uh, we were at a church out in the country called Cook's Union. It was down in the southwest corner of the state. And the thing that was so powerful about that was that this little white frame church out in the countryside had behind it a long, long table. In fact, it was a strange table. It was not made out of boards. It actually was made out of a fence that had been turned on its side and then stretched over these T-forms that would hold it tight so that it could never uh, rot away. It was always there for the dinner on the grounds that would occur two or three times a year. And these were just the most marvelous feast. Have you ever been to a dinner on the grounds of a little country church? If you haven't, you've missed it. I feel so sorry for you. (laughs) Casseroles by the hundreds, every sort. The most wonderful feast, desserts, cakes, pies, every sort of food that you can imagine. And, And chicken by the truckload. It's just amazing what, the, what they can do. And in fact, to tell you the truth, on occasion throughout the year, Pittman Park can do a pretty good job of this in the fellowship hall at times. But it is an amazing thing to think about. I can remember that people would be invited to come and to join us. Even if they hadn't attended worship, they would be invited to come in and to participate in all of the joy and the celebration of the moments. This is the kind of thing to which Christ calls us. Not that we are called to duty. Not that duty is a bad thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. This is where the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes were getting it wrong. They had lost their sense of going away from home in order to help others become a part of the celebration. 
Yesterday I was over at the Habitat House, number 51, and uh, it is wonderful to see our congregation beginning to be at work there. We are sharing the duty with other United Methodist churches and particularly um, the Georgia Southern Band that is helping to sponsor that house as well. And there were a lot of students there that were working and some uh, that were giving direction and uh, others that actually knew where the walls needed to be. And uh, I'm glad for that because um, I'm always thinking to myself, I'm going to put something up the wrong way. But as I was there, um, I saw uh, this precious lady come onto the site and I knew who she was when she was coming that direction. Uh, it was Margarita Patterson, who will be the occupier of that place um, when it is completed. But I saw her walk up to uh, one of the fellows who was uh, trying to get a board in place, and she looked at him and she, she said, this is my house. And he looked at her and then went right back to working as if she had not said anything significant. And I thought to myself, man, stand up and clap. This lady is claiming her territory already in such a beautiful way. Margarita Peterson was there on the site and was wandering around and taking it all in and doing things that she could. And before I left, I said, Margarita, I want to introduce myself to you. I'm Bill Bagwell. I'm the pastor over at Pitland Park Church. And she grabbed me and hugged me so tight. I think she was intending to hug all of you, really. She was trying to express to us her appreciation for our setting things right in her life. She's a person that does not have to learn how to celebrate. She's caught in the celebration of it all. Are you? Do you have a sense of what God is doing? Do you have a sense of this feast that we are inviting others to. And speaking of feasts, let me invite you to the Lord's table. The order of this liturgy is on page 12 in your hymnal, if you'll turn there with me.